Let's open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 this morning. That's our text. The topic, believers troubled by intense persecution, which was only going to get much worse, are encouraged to understand that the time of the end is near. The title of our message, Are We Near Yet? Let's have... Well, thank you. That's actually not one of the funnier ones, but I appreciate the encouragement. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, bless our study in your word. In fact, Lord, you promised to bless our study in your word, as we'll see. And so we look for that blessing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was originally called Chinese Whispers. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Very good. You must be an educator. But we know it as the telephone game. One person whispers a message to another, which is passed through a line of people until the last player announces the message to the entire group. Errors typically accumulate in the retellings, so the statement announced by the last player differs significantly and often hilariously from the one uttered by the first. I was going to try it this morning, but I thought better of it. (laughs) By the way, the reason it was called Chinese Whispers is the same reason that it's not called Chinese Whispers anymore, namely, Europeans were insulting the Chinese. Uh, I was exposed by some of the saints here in our fellowship to a hybrid form of the game called Telephone Pictionary. Anybody play Telephone Pictionary? Some of you are doing it right now. Uh, <laughs> in that game, a well, this is going to get more interesting, I try, promise, in uh, which a well-known phrase is drawn, then it is guessed, and then the new guess has to be drawn, and so on, yielding side-splitting results. Now, too many Christians, including Bible teachers and commentators, approach this last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as if it was a message somehow garbled in its telling. As we will see, interestingly, God the Father gave it to Jesus, who then gave it to an angel, who then gave it to the apostle John, who then gave it to us. If that sequence was natural, then we might expect some problems interpreting the message. But the process was not natural, it was supernatural. The text was inspired by God the Holy Spirit, given to John inerrant in the original manuscript. The book will yield its treasures to all those who patiently and prayerfully read it and study it. Our patient, prayerful reading and studying begins today. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, seeing Jesus unveiled reassures us that the time is near. And number two, seeing Jesus unveiled reminds us that our time is his. Let's take a look at the fact that the time is near in verses one through three. Have you ever seen a sculpture or a statue presented in a public ceremony? Normally it is covered or veiled until the artist pulls the veil off, unveiling it for everyone to see. This book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It pulls the cover off, revealing him as he is today and as he will be at his coming and in eternity. Jesus, except for one brief moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, was veiled throughout his first coming. He was, of course, fully God, but he was God in human flesh, fully man. He was the ultimate servant. He set aside the voluntary use of his divine attributes in order to, as a man, live in absolute submission to God the Father by the leading and empowering of God the Holy Spirit. He died 
on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he looks a little different today, and this is the unveiling we're going to receive in the book of the Revelation. And so verse one reads like this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, while the book contains a series of detailed visions that reveal many things about the future, that is not what these opening words refer to at all. Revelation is a Greek word from which we get our word apocalypse. Now, as we've already said, it means an uncovering or an unveiling. We typically use the word apocalypse to talk about the end of the world disasters. We talk about things being apocalyptic as, you know, as they're going crazy. But the word means the unveiling of. And this book is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's going to involve some tremendous catastrophes, but the focus is not on them. It is on him. And we want to see this book as one single revelation. We want to see Jesus on every page, in every section, in every sentence. Now, you might think that's going to be hard given the fact that so much of what happens in this book relates to what is called the wrath of God against unrepentant sinners because there's so much carnage and horror in this book. After all, how can we see Jesus in that wrath? Well, we're calling the series The Grace of Wrath for just that reason. As we will see throughout this book, In wrath, God remembers mercy. Even and especially during its judgments, mankind is called upon to repent, to believe, and to be saved. It may be a severe mercy, but it is God's mercy nonetheless. And as the gospel of grace is preached literally to every person on the planet during the time most of the events of the revelation take place. It is God uh, in the end doing what he must to show men that they need salvation. And so it is the grace of his wrath. Now, God the Father gave Jesus this unveiling. Jesus Christ is God, as we've said. He's equal with God. But in terms of function and the plan of salvation, he remains subordinate to his Father's will. A lot of times the cults and other individuals get confused about the Trinity, uh, one God, three persons, all equal, Uh, because they say, well, see, Jesus subordinates himself to the Father. Yes, of course he does in terms of function, in terms of how the plan of salvation is going to work out, but Jesus is no less God. Jesus uh, then gave the unveiling of himself to an unnamed angel who then gave it to John for him to write it down for us. And this unveiling, he says, is to show his servants The Lord wants us to see him as he is now in heaven and as he will be at his second coming. It's as if he's saying, look at me. Where are we looking in the various areas of our lives, for example, for help or for hope or for satisfaction or for purpose or for acknowledgement? Those were just four or five things I jotted down last night that people are looking for. Uh, I'm sure there are many of us this morning looking for hope or help. Uh, Are we looking for it to Jesus Christ? Because Jesus says, turn away from anyone and anything else, turn and look at me. Oftentimes we do not find that which we desire and need spiritually because we're looking in the wrong place. And so that's part of the value of this book is that Jesus is revealed and unveiled and uncovered for us as the source of all these things. 
the believers in the church at Thessalonica were described as having turned to God from idols. That's a great description of what happens when you become a Christian. You turn to God and away from idols and the things of the world. Later in the New Testament, John, the same John, will urge believers to keep yourself from idols. And so you turn to God from idols, and then you need to work at keeping yourself from returning. And so another question this morning, is there something or someone that Jesus delivered you from, but now you've returned to it? Is there something or someone exerting an unhealthy influence upon your heart, crowding out your heart where the love of Jesus Christ should be? Turn and look at the Lord. Now, he says uh, the things which must shortly take place, that's often misunderstood to mean that all the prophecies of the book were to be fulfilled soon after they were given. And I'll probably mention this throughout the series but every now and then, but there's a whole generation of Christians who is trying to say that the book of the Revelation has already been mostly fulfilled in the first century, that we're not really looking at prophecy, we're looking back at history. And one of the things they sometimes say is that uh, the Lord says right here, these things must shortly take place. Well, here's the thing. Shortly is a word that means quickly or suddenly. We get our word tachometer from it. When you floor your accelerator pedal, the tachometer redlines. In the context of end times events, it means that once they begin, it will be pedal to the metal. It doesn't mean they were going to happen immediately or soon. And so things which must shortly take place means once these events begin, the events that we're going to describe in this book, they are on. It's going to happen. And specifically the seven-year great tribulation. Once it starts, it's going to run its course. There's no stopping it. Uh, Jesus compared this time of the world, this future time, to a woman in labor. Once the labor starts, you don't go on hold to hit in and out uh, or anything like that. You just say, hey, I gotta finish my grocery. You're in labor until that baby comes. Signified can be understood like this, signified or through signs and symbols. I've heard people say that the revelation cannot be really understood because it is so full of weird signs and symbols. Stop and think about that for just a moment. We use signs and symbols today when we want to be clear about things. Signs and symbols are better than language. They are universal. When we were in communist China or any of the other places that we've been around the world, it's nice in airports to see which bathroom you're supposed to use. Of course, that's not as necessary in the United States anymore as it used to be because everybody uses the same bathroom. But, um, you know, you, you, I, can't, I don't know about you, but I can't read Chinese characters. Uh, I don't know which one says men and which one says women, but I can usually tell the difference between a man and a woman on the sign. It makes it clear. People act as if the book of the Revelation is written in Chinese characters when it's written in signs that we can all understand. In the book, the signs and symbols will either be defined for you or you can easily find them defined by their use elsewhere in the Bible. Verse two, he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. John, of course, is the Apostle John, the author of the gospel bearing his name and three New Testament letters. He identifies himself four times in the book of the Revelation, in chapter one, three times, and then at the end in chapter 22. He's content to call himself a servant. Don't look for titles, just be content to be called a servant because you are a servant. 
And he used the word for a voluntary bond slave. This would be someone who chose slavery out of love for their master when they could have been set free. He received the revelation as the word of God given to him by the testimony of Jesus Christ, and it says he saw it for himself. Now, I believe that John was transported forward in history and actually witnessed what he recorded. I don't understand that, but I believe that. If you prefer to think that it was a vision because that blows your mind, I'm cool with that too. Just know that what John saw is exactly what is going to happen. There's no no hope or chance that somebody is going to rise up with a world peace plan that derails uh, the end times once they begin. This is an accurate record of future history. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Let me ask you this, do you want to be blessed Well, you'd have to be a maroon to say no. Of course you want to be blessed. That was a comment for all you Bugs Bunny fans out there. Remember Bugs Bunny? What a maroon. What a nimrod. Biblical reference right there. Bugs Bunny, I think, is a Christian. I, I don't see any other way of... Or at least he's Jewish, maybe. I don't know. But anyway. You want to be blessed, then why aren't we reading the Revelation more? Why don't we read Revelation every day? In context, it says, he who reads, and that's in singular, the hearers would not all have a copy of the scroll being read, so this is a special blessing upon the one who reads it out loud. In this series, that's me, so I'm coming every Sunday and receiving a special blessing. The hearers are blessed too, and both reader and hearer are encouraged to keep those things which are written. Now, this certainly encompasses uh, being obedient to God and finding and following God's will, But what it actually means is to pay attention to the things in this book. And it's in the present tense, meaning keep reading it, keep hearing it, keep paying attention. It is anticipating what has happened throughout history that many Christians ignore or at least neglect this book. And that has been sadly true throughout the history of the church where people just neglect the book of the Revelation. I would wager, if we were honest, myself included, we would say, yeah, I've neglected reading the book of Revelation for quite some time till I get to it every year in my yearly reading, even though it promises me a blessing. John Calvin, scholarly figure of the Protestant Reformation, for example, wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. Now, his supporters will tell you why or why not. It's just a fact that he neglected and ignored the book of the Revelation, and that's what Jesus says not to do. God throws out an offer to bless you, to encourage you to read and reread and keep reading the Revelation. Why? Because of what we've already said, for one thing. Uh, Jesus wants you to look at him, and he is unveiled and revealed in this book as nowhere else. Not reading the Revelation regularly would be like walking out of a movie without seeing the last scene or reading a book and ignoring the last chapter. You just get, and you think, hey, uh, I'm gonna put a marker in at the last chapter because just before I get there, I'm gonna put the book down and, and I'm done. People say, oh, did you read the last chapter? No. Do you know what happened? No. Why not? Uh, I didn't want to. It doesn't make any sense in that venue and it doesn't make any sense in the Bible. 
I'm not sure how long it would actually take you to read the entire revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're a, a good or a not so good reader. I, I'm an average reader. You can download narrations of it that are slightly over one hour long. You would think it would take longer to speak the revelation, but I found one version that's uh, an hour and seven minutes read from start to finish. And so throughout this series, why not read and reread and keep reading it, or at least listen to it from cover to cover as often as you can uh, on your tablet or device or whatever you happen to be listening to, just, just find one of those, just search for Revelation narrated and pick one of them and just let it go and keep doing it throughout our series. You'll be blessed, God says. I don't know exactly how, but I know you'll see Jesus. He says the time is near. Now, this is referring to a specific period of time, one that will be described in great detail in the following chapters. We know it as the seven-year great tribulation, whose final three and a half years are the great tribulation. Seven-year tribulation, last three and a half years, the great tribulation. How was or is it near? Well, once again, this does not mean it was about to happen. It is near in the sense that it is next on God's prophetic calendar. You say, wait a minute, Gene, every week you tell us that the next thing is the rapture of the church, the resurrection and rapture. Well, that's true, but that is an imminent event. That could happen at any time. You don't put imminent events on the calendar. Otherwise, you'd have a lot of annoying alerts all day. Every minute, an alert would go off saying the rapture could happen. The rapture could happen. The rapture could happen. It's not a calendar event. God gave Israel a calendar through the prophet Daniel. It's Daniel's famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. Uh, and that final week of years, that seven years, that's the tribulation that's in the future. So. It is, it is um, near in that sense. When John wrote this, he was saying, hey, the time of the end that, that Jesus spoke of and that Daniel gave us, it's near. As far as you and I are concerned, as we'll see in the book, we're waiting for the rapture. Now, how is it reassuring that the tribulation is near? Well, for one thing, the saints that were written to in the first century were suffering tremendous persecution, and uh, it was reassuring because they knew that the tribulation would prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ and their troubles would be over. It's reassuring because I know that we win in the end and therefore all the suffering and sadness we must endure will be worked together for the good. We're in a war, a spiritual war, and it's against fierce supernatural foes. They were defeated at the cross but they fight on, Satan and his demons, malevolent and depraved. If you look out on the world today, they seem to be gaining ground. They seem to be winning on almost every front. They might seem to be winning in your life right now. They're not, or at least they won't, because we see the record of their final ultimate overthrow and defeat by Jesus Christ as he is unveiled to us. In the meantime, we can look at him unveiled and he will lead us through the battlefields of our life by his ever-sufficient, all-sustaining grace. Now, in verses four through eight, seeing Jesus unveiled reminds us that our time is his. It belongs to him. After the terror attacks on 9-11, you read or heard stories almost every day of individuals either enlisting or re-enlisting in military service for our great country. We had patriotic heroes from our own fellowship who had retired from active duty who re-enlisted to serve at great cost. 
This next set of verses is a call to believers to re-enlist in the service of the Lord. They're a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us and of who we are in him so that we will be about his business as history unfolds according to his plan. And so verse four, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, there are a lot of groupings of sevens in this book. By the time it ends, we will encounter at least 52 different groupings of sevens. Seven is the number of completion. God created the heavens and the earth in six days, then rested on the seventh day because his work was finished. We have a week of seven days as a result, and that week is over, and then something new starts. So seven is the number of completion. Nothing mystical about that. That's just true. It's appropriate that sevens are prominent in the Revelation because it is the book that gives us the completion of God's plan for the human race. Everything that began in Genesis ends and finds its fulfillment in the Revelation. The seven churches were in the region we know as modern Turkey. Uh, We have a tendency to think all of this takes place in Western Europe, but these uh, churches were actually in Turkey. In chapters two and three, we'll see the identity of these seven churches. Notice this is one letter written to all seven churches. It includes individual letters to the churches as well, but it gives us a clue that there's more going on than Jesus simply addressing seven local first century churches. Another clue is that these were not prominent churches. You'd expect him to write to the church at Jerusalem or to the church at Antioch. And there were other churches in the region of Turkey, like the church at Colossae. We're going to see the seven letters as representing something far greater, something far more complete. As we'll see, they are letters written for the churches throughout the age in which we live and for all those in them. And by the way, notice too in passing, Jesus deals with believers as a body, as members of a local assembly that meets together under his delegated authority. He isn't writing to individual Christians. The message is for individual Christians who are attending the churches in their locality and the message is coming to that church. I have to mention that sadly because in these last days, people are uh, coming up with all kinds of new alternatives to church. People are tired of church. I'm not saying that church is perfect. You know why churches aren't perfect? Because you are here and because I am here. And so we're never going to have a perfect church. And the truth is the first century church was all messed up. People say, oh, I want to get back to the church in the first century. Not if it was in Corinth, you don't, or in the region of Galatia or almost anywhere. There are lots of problems in the church because there are people in the church. But Jesus works through His church. People say, oh, the church is too organized. We're just an organism. We're the body of Christ. We meet at Starbucks. It's just me and you having fellowship over a latte. I don't, I mean, this is what's happening today, people. You know people who don't go to church anymore. They're solid, sincere Christians. They, you know, but they don't want to go to church because, you know, they don't need church. Jesus loves the church. He writes to the church. And, and he, by church, he means not just every believer scattered anywhere. He means the church at Ephesus or at Smyrna or at Pergamos or in Hanford. 
that is called Calvary Chapel or whatever the other good churches are called, and he ministers in that way. And so we, you guys know this, and you're here, and it's a blessing. I'm saying this to encourage you about all the, when you think, gosh, you know, where, where's this person and that person? My friend who doesn't really go to church, you know, uh, tell them to mow their lawn on Saturday. I, know, I mean, I know you can worship God by mowing your lawn, but God wants you in church so that you can be ministered to. Grace to you and peace are so common a greeting, we may not think about how remarkable it is to be able to say it. Grace to you should take me back to the understanding I am totally undeserving of salvation. I'm a sinner by nature and by choice, but God has saved me by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then peace is what I can therefore experience as a human being for the first time. I'm at peace with God, and I can have the supernatural peace of God as my companion in all the turmoil of my life. John then tells you that each person of the Trinity greets you. God the Father is him who is and was and who is to come. Now, we might think that's describing Jesus, but a Jew would immediately and correctly understand it refers to Yahweh because it's a, a, a way of saying that God eternally existed as the great I am. Plus, you're told in the very next phrase that he is seated on his throne. Though co-equal in deity, the Father sits on his throne and Jesus sits at the right hand. So this first greeting is from our dad. Remember, as I said earlier, in terms of deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are equal, but in terms of function, uh, and that's what we're looking at in the book of Revelation, how is the world going to be taken back for the Lord and him establish his kingdom? In terms of function, God the Father is on the throne and Jesus is at the right hand ready to move. Now, next, we're greeted by the seven spirits who are before his throne. Ooh, mystical, weird, but it doesn't refer to seven beings. It's, remember, seven, we already saw, is the number of completion. The seven spirits refers to the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Because Isaiah told me in chapter 11, verse 2. When Isaiah described the Savior that was to come, he said, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven different descriptions. Uh, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Uh, by the way, these are the things we need to live a balanced, victorious life. Uh, we need the spirit of the Lord who has wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, those seven things. And so uh, we can seek them from Jesus Christ because he's the one who gives us the spirit. And we should seek them from him and not professionals and especially not from godless professionals. If we're paying attention, we're gonna see throughout the book that while there are no direct quotes from the Hebrew scriptures, there are over 500 references to them that help us make sense of the text, like this one from Isaiah. And so you think, wow, that's a weird, the seven spirits, what's that? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know exactly what it is. It's what Isaiah said. It's his description of God, the Holy Spirit, seen from heaven's point of view. One of the commentators we like, he's a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he suggests that one of the great things about the Revelation is that it puts the prophecies of the Old Testament into chronological order for us so that they all begin to make sense. And again, far from being hard to understand, 
Revelation is one of the most chronological of all the books of the Bible, gathering together information from all the rest of the Scripture so that you can know the proper sequence of end times events. Next, the Lord Jesus Christ is described in verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is Jesus in the past, in the present, and in the future. Faithful witness looks to his past because witness is the word martyr. Jesus came and was faithful to accomplish his witness, his death on the cross for the human race. Firstborn is a word of preeminence. It has nothing to do with Jesus being created or being second to the Father. It means Jesus rose from the dead as the firstborn and preeminent person to never die again. It means others will follow and rise from the dead as a result of his resurrection. Uh, it means that we will live forever. And then in the future, the Lord Jesus will be the literal ruler over the kings of the earth. What follows in this book explains exactly how that's going to come about in history. It says in verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There's some debate among scholars as to whether this should read to him who loved us or to him who loves us, but both are true, and, and so I take it both ways. We rightfully tell people, Jesus loves you. We might also say to them, Jesus loved you. He loved you while you were yet a sinner, and he proved his love on the cross by dying for you. He washed us from our sins in his blood. Washed is better translated loosed. It's better understood that way. Sin was your master, but no more. You've been loosed by the death of Jesus Christ to serve him as your new master. You've been set free from sin. If you want a good definition of what it means to be a Christian, you were and always will be loved by Jesus, and you are loosed from the penalty and power of your sins. One day soon, either through death or at the rapture, we will be loosed from the actual presence of sin and we will be unable to sin again. Do you consider yourself on the loose? You know, we sometimes describe certain dangerous individuals that way. Look out, so-and-so is on the loose. You know, lock your doors, uh, make sure your concealed weapon is loaded, all of those kinds of things. Jesus has loosed you so you can be on the loose in the world, dangerous in a good way, dangerous towards supernatural enemies that seek to hinder the gospel. Verse six, he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. This seems prophetic. It's understood to be presently true because it will surely come to pass when in the second coming we do return with Jesus as kings and priests. This book describes the establishing of the promised kingdom of heaven on the earth. We are gonna be active in that kingdom. We will be serving the Lord as kings and priests. It says to him be glory. That'll be true when he's fully revealed at his second coming. Then he will have dominion forever and ever from that time forward. Now, don't get me wrong. He has it now. The Lord is in charge of the world now, but he will fully exercise his dominion at his second coming. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Amen. The return of Jesus to this earth is a central theme in this book. It deals with events leading up to the second coming, events accompanying the second coming, and events following the second coming. 
Clouds isn't the AccuWeather forecast for the, second, uh, for the day of the second coming. It means at least three things, or it reminds us of at least three things. It reminds us of Jesus' ascension into the clouds. There was the testimony of two men that he would return in like manner. So this is putting us on notice that what we're reading in Revelation is a real, physical, literal return of Jesus Christ. Not some crazy, mystical, spiritual return that some groups just sense. Jesus, this same Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven in bodily form is coming again in bodily form. Secondly, a cloud of glory called the Shekinah always shone around God. At his return, there's gonna be an amazing light show. How many of you have seen World of Color at Disney's California Adventure? Man, I love that, it's spectacular. As Zeke would say, my little grandson, his word this week is incredible. He just looks at things that are not incredible and says, incredible. <laughs> and to him they are, and so to me they are too, and, and to you they better be as well. But anyway, <laughs> it's gonna be an amazing light show that, fo- that comes along with Jesus Christ. And then in the book of Hebrews, the saints of God, you and I, are described as a great cloud of witnesses. And so we're, we know that many saints will be returning with the Lord. There's so much packed into every word of the revelation, I can't stand it. I almost can't get through it. Now, while saints will return from heaven with the Lord, many will still be on the earth. They will survive the great tribulation. Among every eye who sees Jesus will be they who pierce them. Now, this group I told you who's trying to say that uh, the revelation is mostly fulfilled in the first century, they say, well, aha, Jesus is gonna return to they who pierced him. Who pierced him? A bunch of Romans and Jews in the first century. And so we're not looking at future history, we're looking at the past. But that's not true at all because this is really another reference to an Old Testament passage. It's a reference to Zechariah 12.10, which tells us specifically that Jews, ethnic Jews, will see the return of Jesus at Mount, on Mount Zion and they will look upon him whom they pierced meaning the nation of Israel, not a specific group of people. John is pretty old by now, by the way, when he's writing this. He's close to death. It's the end of the first century. Most of the people who put Jesus Christ to death were pretty much dead. And so it's not just about the four guys that were still alive. It's about the nation of Israel. And and we'll see all of that. Gentiles will mourn because they will see that they have rejected their savior. And when Jesus sets foot on the earth in his second coming, you're either a believer or a non-believer, it's too late, there's there's no last minute conversion at his coming, your fate is sealed. Even so, amen, it's John's way of saying so be it. Yes, it will be awful for those who have rejected grace and who are not at peace with God, but there's no other way of salvation but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no other possible consummation of God's plan for human history. This is probably, it's not a really good analogy, but uh, uh, we have these, and I'm not sure the status of it right now, but remember the three strikes law for repeat offenders? Because even society recognizes that some people just won't relent. They just don't get it. And so we finally have to say, you can go this far and no farther. The great tribulation is like the third strike. It's like God has been trying. Right now, God is trying through just the preaching of the gospel, the free grace of God. Get saved. There's people here today that aren't saved. 
They're putting off salvation. And so God is going to just ramp it up, up and up and up until meteors are falling out of the sky and water is turning to blood and angels are saying, get saved before it's too late. And people say, yeah, I'm going to hide. I watch doomsday preppers and I'm going to hide. And then sooner or later, that day is going to come when Jesus Christ blows out the heavens and returns and they're going to mourn because they're going to realize it's too late. There's no more chance. There's no chance at that time. There's no chance after death. There's no purgatory. I wish there was a purgatory where people could work out their problems. There is no such place, and that's what this is about. Even so, is John's way of saying, so be it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like Amazon's slogan, everything from A to Z. Don't you love Amazon? You've got everything from A to Z. Jesus is from A to Z. As if that wasn't inclusive enough, he said, I'm the beginning and the end. With the revelation of Jesus Christ completing the Bible, you and I have uh, God's entire alphabet and every word he wants to say to us. We see everything in history from its beginning to its end it spans eternity from what we would call eternity past through eternity future. Jesus described himself in terms equal to God the Father when he said who is and who was and who is to come. Almighty is used 10 times in the New Testament and nine of them are in the Revelation. This is the book where we see God Almighty, but it's an interesting word. The Hebrew for Almighty means the God of heaven's armies or the God of heaven's hosts. It assures us of God's ultimate victory because who can withstand heaven's host? But it simultaneously reminds us there is a war going on. When somebody says the Almighty God, you know, we normally think, rightfully think God is sovereign, he's in charge of everything, that's true, but it's also... Uh, the God of heaven's armies, and it reminds us that waging all around us is a warfare, and it's going to go on until the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then it's gonna go on again at the end of the kingdom of heaven on the earth, as we'll see in this book, until finally we're in eternity. The revelation of Jesus Christ can have a 9-11 effect on us, if we let it. It can encourage us to enlist, or to re-enlist in the Lord's service during his absence as the war rages on. You've probably seen the film Top Gun. At the end, while Iceman is in a dogfight with six Russian MiG-28s, Maverick, played by Tom Cruise, hovers around. He's afraid and unwilling to engage in the enemy because Goose died in jet wash. Oh, I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? Help me, help me. Oh, I don't know. It seems like there's too many of them. And you're sitting there thinking, get in the fight! That's what the scene is intended to do. Get in the fight. With the Lord's help to search your heart, ask yourself this morning, am I in the fight? Am I in the fight against the flesh? It's a fight that was won for me at the cross where my flesh was crucified with Jesus Christ so I can always say no to my flesh. I can always say no to sin and yes to God. Am I in that fight? Or have I surrendered some or all the areas of my life back to the flesh? Am I in the fight against the world? It's a fight that was won for me because I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places positionally and I have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Can you imagine having a pantry that full? 
Did you ever run, did you ever not have what you need to cook, one spice or some ingredient? It happens to me all the time when I cook because I'm an idiot. I, 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 oh yeah, I've got garlic salt, you know. At my house, you can never have enough garlic salt. You need hundreds of pounds of garlic salt. But anyway, uh, and, but it, 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 from, we act sometimes like, well, I don't, I don't have the resources to be a better Christian at work. Oh, I can't really serve in the church. I can't go on the mission field. I can't do this. I can't do that because I, I, I don't have the equipment. Positionally, you have everything you need to function right where you are to do the things that God calls you to do, but it requires a step of faith. So get in the fight. Am I in the fight against the devil? Well, he was defeated at the cross, and though he rages on seeking to devour me and you, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We weren't loved and loosed to cruise around as if we were in a private jet. We're put into combat, and we need to remain engaged against the enemy, and we're to do just that through service and support of the local church we attend as we see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's have a big amen. Amen? Amen. amen. All right, let's pray.